Morning, New Hope family. Glad that you are here. If you're new, welcome. Really glad that you decided to join us this morning, be part of this, especially if you're part of the, the broadcast right now virtually. Thanks for tuning in. Um, something happened in my house this weekend. Our daughter Ashley had her firstborn son. It's very cool. And I know you're going to ask me how big, but I know he's about that long. 20 inches? 19? Somewhere in there? 8.2 pounds, I do know that. Lots of hair, a uh, little Jameson, so pretty thrilled for them. So uh, Ashley and Peter are doing really well, and little Jameson's doing well. Very excited. I'm going to do something completely different this morning than what you might have anticipated, because last week we were in the book of, Samson, in the book of Judges in the story of Samson, and I kind of left you with a cliffhanger, didn't I, and said we'd come back to it. Well, coming back to it means January 8th. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, here's the reasoning, though. We're going to celebrate Christmas after communion this morning. We're going to do a couple Christmas songs, and communion obviously is its own thing. It's just incredibly important. But the Samson story, the second half of it, is so incredibly dark that I just couldn't do that to you this morning. And so I'm going to do something different than what you would have anticipated because I don't know that you've ever quite looked at communion and what you're about to do in the way that we're going to look at it. So I'm going to take you to Matthew 26 for that reason and help you to understand what was going on when Jesus put communion in place. Highly simplified version of it. I know if you've ever been to like a, a Passover Seder, um, a celebration of Passover, it's going to seem very shrunk down. Um, but here's how I want you to think of it as we walk into this. Every time we do communion here, I start off by reading to you 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul starts out with a remarkable phrase that a lot of people don't pay attention to. He begins this way, in the night that our Lord was betrayed. It tells you something about what was on the mind of the followers of Jesus. He could have said, in the night that Jesus was arrested, or in the night before Jesus died for us on the cross. Or three days before the resurrection. But he says, in the night that Jesus was betrayed. And you're going to see that word pop up over and over again this morning in Hebrews or in Matthew 26. Before we do that, I want to pray with you that God would show us what he wants us to see in the midst of what we're going to look at. So would you join me together? Let's pray. Father, I do in indeed really truly thank you for every single soul that's in the auditorium, everyone that's part of the broadcast right now. Thank you for moving in our lives, bringing us here to this point where we can hear from your word. And so we would ask, we would actually implore that your Holy Spirit would teach us so that we can understand better what we're doing and how we can represent you better to the world that is made up of individuals who are confused and are not sure what this is all about, that you would use us in such a way that we would speak the truth in love and compassion, but with authority also, Father. We pray for these things as we study your word right now and ask that you would guide us and teach us in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. In the United States of America, we have some unusual customs, things that are unique to our nation. We ask people to stand for the Star-Spangled Banner. 
and we sing it publicly out loud. We teach our children the Pledge of Allegiance. At certain funerals with a military closing, we play taps at the end of the service. Those are things that you would find that are unique to the United States of America. There's a custom, however, that is not unique to America. It takes place all over the world. This weekend, churches all over the world will be participating in what we understand as something that the first century Romans and the Greeks thought was barbaric. They thought it was cannibalism because they misunderstood what was taking place in what we call the Lord's Supper. If your tradition is such that you might be familiar with it being called Holy Communion or the Eucharist or communion itself. All of it's rooted in 1 Corinthians 11 in which Paul refers to it as the Lord's table. Those labels are attached to it within the church. It's familiar to us in America, but it's familiar to people around the world who participate in communion. So what it's rooted in though is both known and unknown. So I want to frame it for you this way, because you've been in the E2E study, if you're new to New Hope, E2E is eternity to eternity. We're working from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We've made our way to the book of Judges, and through this series, you've been understanding how these things came to be. And in our E2E study, what we've seen is a commitment that God made around Genesis chapter 10, 11, somewhere in there, when He made a commitment to Abraham. And that commitment that God made to Abraham was advanced in Isaac, and then enhanced in Jacob, and then came Joseph, and then came 400 years of captivity, and finally it was realized the commitment that God had made when Moses came on the scene, and Moses finally, after 400 years of captivity in Egypt, led God's people out of slavery, and God delivered them to the promised land. But if you think all the way back to Genesis and Exodus, you remember that God did that through a series of plagues. And you'll recall that the final plague took the lives of the firstborn throughout the entire nation of Egypt. And the only way people could protect themselves from that angel of death that came and took the lives of the firstborn was if they sacrificed a lamb, a yearling, unblemished, spotless lamb, and used the blood to spread it over the door of their house so that the angel of death would pass over them, and that instituted the tradition of Passover. So individuals in that meal had to take the remaining portion of the lamb, consume all of the meat, they had to eat the herbs that were in their home, and bread that was in their home that was unleavened. That went on for centuries. That Passover continued exactly the same century after century after century. Fast forward to the first century in 30 AD, and you find Jesus gathering with His 12 in an undisclosed location in this upper room of an unknown house, and we're told that He reclined. So when evening came at some time after 6 o'clock in the evening, Jesus gathers together with this group of individuals who follow Him, and we read this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, He said, "'Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me 
being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Mind you, at this point, Judas has already negotiated the price. He's already met with the corrupt leaders of his nation and bargained away Jesus' life. So how duplicitous in that moment to say, you don't really think it's me, do you? Well, absolutely it's you. You've already negotiated the price. That's really crucial for you and I to understand that those who betray Him and those who deny Him are in the room when the things I'm about to describe to you all unfold. Later that night, Jesus will be betrayed, and He will be captured, and He will be tortured. But in the midst of it, He will also be denied. But first, He had to have a Passover meal, and we know that it was a Passover meal because He tells us. We see this in Luke twenty-two fifteen. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Now, really importantly, when the Passover comes around, nothing of the meal can be remaining when morning comes. There's no refrigeration system. They have to consume everything. That was tradition. Eat it all and eat it until you're full, but it has to be all consumed. So we find this in verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, "'Take, eat, this is My body.'" And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, "'Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom.'" After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." Now, there's some really powerful imagery taking place in what you just read, and perhaps you've read it your entire life, and you've just glanced over it and never really paid attention. But understand what's developing here. Bear down with me, first of all, just on verse 20. Look at this. Now, when, everyone, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table. The very last item recited at every Passover meal is always recited by the youngest person who happens to be in the room at that time. I'm going to read it to you exactly the way it's phrased so that I don't get it wrong. Hear this. This is the way you would hear it if you were in a Passover meal at this period of time. On all other nights, we eat our meals either sitting or standing. Why on this night do we all recline? The answer is, because at this period of time in the first century, but also dating all the way back to the time of Moses, slaves stood eating their meal. Slaves might sit in a somewhat reclined position, but mostly ready to move at the moment the master would call them. But slaves never were able to go in full recline mode because they were not free. Reclining is for freed people. So in ancient culture, reclining represents freedom from slavery. Only free people recline. 
So we find Jesus reclining. So while he's reclining, it'd be very common in the midst of that meal to do what you would do. If you had chips and salsa in front of you, you're going to be using that and dipping it in and talking to your friends who are gathered around you. Jesus has matzah there, and there's a paste that they would have present as well. So it would be very common for Jesus to be dipping into a, his matzah into a dish, and it would be containing this marar, a, a, a mixture of fruit and nuts put together with wine to make a paste, and it had a bitterness to it. And the reason for it was it was intended to remind them of the mortar that they prepared as slaves when they were back in Egypt, to remind them of the bitterness of working under Pharaoh. So this marar or maro that was present, this was common as a dish that people would dip into, a kind of a, a sweet paste. And it reminded them of the mortar so as they're sitting and eating, Jesus does something extraordinary. Watch with me, verse 24. The Son of Man is to go. This is what Jesus is speaking. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now wait. They've just all gathered for a celebration of Passover. This is like inviting people over to your house for a football game. And you put out the chips and crackers even though it's a Passover celebration for them, it's a festive environment. And all of a sudden, the main guest, the main focus of getting together is telling everybody, I'm about to be betrayed. Woe to the one who's going to betray me. The Son of Man is about to go just as it's written of him. So he's announcing that he's going to die. Just as written, what does that mean? He's referring to the Old Testament. Just as it's written by Isaiah in chapter 53 that he would be pierced through for our transgressions, that by his stripes we would be healed. Jesus is referring back to Old Testament stuff that's being written about what's going to happen to the Son of Man. And he's saying, just as it's written about the Son of Man, it's going to happen to me. But then he goes further and he dramatically breaks with tradition that's been in place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Verse 26, while they were eating, picture the festive setting, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, after a blessing, th this particular practice here, barakah. This blessing is something that's pronounced over food, it's pronounced over wine, and the phraseology would change at the end. Now, typically, a first century Jew would look up to heaven. They're not praying with their eyes closed, and Jesus does that on multiple occasions in the New Testament. He's praying to heaven, eyes wide open, and He says out loud this barakah. Let me read it for you in Hebrew. We know that Jesus obviously spoke Aramaic very likely spoke Hebrew as well. Most did in the first century. Many also spoke Greek. So usually proficient in three languages, but very likely at a Passover setting, Jesus would be speaking in Hebrew. Hear this in Hebrew, the way the blessing would be pronounced. Baruch atah Adonai Elheinu Melech HaHolem Hamutzai Lachem Mini Ha, ha, rats. 
which translates into English, praise be to you, Adonai, king of all the universe, for you have brought forth bread from the land. Now, the phrase would change at the end of the blessing if it was, you have brought forth wine from the land, you have produced grapes from the land. But the beginning of the blessing was always the same. So during Passover, customarily, traditionally, they were forbidden from having any leaven in the house whatsoever to puff the bread up. So traditionally, before the Passover day festival would even begin, in this case, they're meeting on Thursday, so on Wednesday, they had to throw all the leavening out of the house and burn it. So there would be no chance that there would be any bread in the home that would be puffed up because leavening represents sin, and God says, you're going to do this with unleavened bread. So from the moment on that they cast the leavening out of the house, everything in the house is matzah, a thin wafer bread. So at Passover meal, there's three matzah pieces specifically that are used for the Passover tradition. One of the matzah crackers is placed in a cloth bag called a matzatash, but not before it's broken in half. Now, one half is distributed to the members who are there, but the other half is put in a matzatash bag. It's hidden away. It's intended to be discovered later. Well, early in the event, Jesus has this matzah bread in His hand. It appears to be the second piece of matzah. He holds up that piece and says, this is my body broken for you. I'm going to distribute it to all of you. I want you to think with me, if you've been to the Good Friday service before, you've heard me explain the matzah in greater detail than what I'm about to do. But it's linked with a tradition that goes back so many hundreds of years, no one knows where it came from. But what we understand by the time Isaiah wrote what he wrote in Isaiah 53, that it was firmly entrenched that when you cooked the matzah and put it in the oven, that the keeper of the home would pierce the bread through and puncture it with holes so there was no chance that any air trapped inside the matzah would cause it to puff up. And then, as it was laid in the oven on the stone, because of the little bubbling that took place, it developed a striping to it. So traditionally, matzah crackers had to have piercing and striping to them. So Jesus is holding up matzah in His hand in the first century, and He says, this is my body broken for you, a piece of matzah that's been pierced through and has been striped. And we find in Isaiah 53 writing that by His stripes we are healed, and He's pierced through for my transgressions. You see the powerful imagery that the disciples are drinking in as they're looking at this, and Jesus is making this statement, this is my body and it's being broken for you. And then we find in verse 27, it says, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. So he pronounces another blessing. Now, if you grew up in a certain tradition, you've heard of this called the Eucharist, the Greek word you see on the screen, Eucharisteo, is simply talking about giving thanks. So Jesus is holding this cup in his hand and he's giving this blessing and he's thanking God for what's in the cup. Or what are we told specifically that's in the cup? He's taking this cup and he's giving thanks and he's holding up in the Passover meal the third cup. 
which is fairly late in the Passover meal. And the third cup is called the cup of redemption among the Jewish people because God said, I will redeem you out of Egypt and take you for myself. So Jesus is holding up this third cup late in the meal and he pronounces this blessing, this Baruchah. Praised are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, for you have brought forth the fruit of the vine. You are the creator of what's in this cup. This is my blood shed for you. Thank you, God, that I'm going to shed this. Watch in the screen. Verse 28, for this is my blood of the new covenant. I added the word new. I'll explain why in just a moment. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. When Jesus says, I'm instituting a covenant at that point, this is really going to rock the world of the disciples. What, what do you mean covenant? We have a covenant we have the Noah covenant, the Noahic covenant, that God wouldn't destroy the earth again by a flood. We have the Abrahamic covenant, that he would take Abraham's seed and, and make him as great as the sand on the seashore. We have the Davidic covenant, and now we hear there's this new covenant. Well, this new covenant is being spoken of directly in Jeremiah 31. Let me show this to you. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Jesus has just established a major shift in the world as they know it, which affects the world as we know it. Because it's no longer about external behavior. It's no longer about the external practices of the covenant. It's now, God says, internal. And he's not eliminating, mind you, the Noahic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant. He's not making those go away or revoking them. He's putting in place a new covenant. And Yeshua says, I put in place a new covenant which remains in force today for you in the 21st century. And it's all attached to his blood. Look with me at verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now, if you have your Bibles open this morning, circle that phrase, until that day. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So at Passover, even today, Jews who are adherents to this all over the world retell the story of the plagues and of the exodus, and they remember what God did on their behalf. Likewise, what you are about to do here in a moment, as the church of Jesus Christ, is to proclaim the death and the resurrection of the Lord as your exodus from sin. That's what he's instituting here. So we look back at the redemption, but we're also looking forward to the future until that day when he comes again for the second time, because he's coming again, right, church? That's what he promised, and God doesn't break his promises. He always does what he said he would do. 
So whenever Jews want to remember God as their Savior, as their Redeemer, He's remembered as the God who delivered them. And their point of contact with this saving God is all based in the blood of the Lamb, the perfect spotless Lamb that was shed for them. But on this particular night, the night that Jesus is gathered with the Twelve, on that night, before Jesus can ever fulfill the role of the perfect Passover lamb and take away the sin of the world, while the disciples are still eating their Passover meal in the setting of that ancient feast that goes back millennia, held in remembrance of God's redemption, Jesus takes that meal and He transforms it into what you know as communion today. Now, here's what I want you to carry out the door with you, and especially as you pick up the elements in a moment when you come up to the tables. It is a huge comfort to me personally, and I'm guessing as you hear this, it's going to be a comfort to you that that room when Jesus did that is full of flawed humans. In other words, He didn't clear the room first and only let the worthy people in. Very broken, very inadequate, those in the room will deny Him, they will run away from Him, they will abandon Him and say that they never knew Him, and some will even betray Him, yet it's to that same group that He says, this is my blood and it's going to be poured out for you, and this is my body, and it's going to be broken for you. And Jesus doesn't clear the room of all the flawed people before instituting the very first communion. So church, settle this in your heart. Was sin involved in denying Him? Yes, absolutely. Was sin involved in abandoning Him? Yeah. Was sin involved in betraying Him? Yes, yes, and yes, but it's to that group of people who fail, just as you do today. It's to that group of people that He extends amazing grace if they would just receive it. Do we deserve it? No. No more so than Peter, James, Philip. Check your heart on this one, even Judas. If Judas had repented and asked for forgiveness, would Jesus have forgiven him? Absolutely. Repentance requires humility, and it requires a recognition that Jesus is who He says He is and that He can forgive. To seek forgiveness from Christ requires a brokenness that says, I've come to the end of myself, and I recognize that Jesus can forgive and does forgive. So standing here today before you, I have to recognize that I'm just like Judas. Judas's betrayal put Jesus on the cross. My sin, your sin, put Jesus on the cross. But what's so important about what you've just looked at is Jesus doesn't wait for them, our spiritual ancestors, 
And he doesn't wait for us to get our spiritual act together before he offers the forgiveness. It's extended before we identify that we even need the forgiveness. And I know this is true, theologically true, because the action of his forgiveness of sin is not accomplished by anything in my capacity to live right. And the same is true of you. It's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but because of what Jesus did in the blood of the Lamb. It's accomplished in His blood. So today, we're not looking back at some blood on an ancient doorpost. We're looking back at blood on an old rugged cross on a hill called Mount Calvary when the blood of the perfect Lamb was shed for every one of us which is your point of contact with a God of saving power. That's what Jesus was doing in the night that He was betrayed. Now with all that information swimming in your head, let me just show you a paragraph without me commenting on it all. This is Luke's version of what happened. When the hour had come, He reclined at the table and the apostles with Him. And He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it up to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' desire is that this death on the cross will serve for us as the focal point in instituting this communion and the subsequent result of his death culminates in a resurrection from the dead. Praise God for that, church. Because without the resurrection, you got nothing. The resurrection is the solidification that God accepted the sacrifice. So when you pick up the cup and you pick up the bread, you're celebrating the fact that He is actually coming again. That's why Paul wrote what he did, that when the followers of Jesus gathered to break the bread and drink from the cup, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. What they're doing is actually proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes because he's coming again. Praise God for that. So at New Hope, if you're new here, our tradition is this. First of all, you're free to go to any of the tables that you would like. They're here in the front and in the back in the atrium. But take some time to examine yourself. Scripture says don't treat this lightly. This is pretty serious stuff. It doesn't get more serious than this. You don't want to trample underfoot the grace of what God gave you. So we take time to examine ourselves. Deal with your relationship with God wherever you're at in that. If you acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and you've dealt with whatever issue is on your mind, come to the table, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and then I will talk you through the rest. But this time right now is for you to talk to the Heavenly Father.